friends. I'm Tabby. And I'm Caitlin. And today we will be reading poems by poet Margaret Atwood. And Vicki Meyer, this one is specifically for you. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to my girl, Vicki. Shout out to Vicki Meyer, um, <laughs> which we talked about her in our last episode. She was our IB world literature teacher, and she is the reason we are the way that we are. Yeah, everything good and bad is to blame on Vicki Meyer. Meyer. Yeah. Love you so much. Love you so much. And um, miss you. Hope you're doing well. Anyways, <laughs> let's freaking get started. So yes. we have picked some like choice poems by Miss Atwood. Who is a um, Canadian poet. She's not from here. Um, oh, did I you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't yeah, know she's that, a Canadian but... poet. Oh, okay. Um, Cool. I love that. She also is super well known for her, just her novels as well. So she wrote The Handmaid's Tale, which the really popular popular. series on Hulu is uh, based off of. So she not only writes poetry, but she writes, you know, other forms of literature. And she is an amazing person. Let me just kind of look up a little bit of that. She's incredible, actually. She's really freaking cool. She's still alive. It's very important to note. Oh, um, yes. She's, she's still alive kicking. and well. And still as wonderful as ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually follow her on Instagram. And she had a little something to say without saying much at all. You know, like, a you know, you know, you know um, about recent events on Instagram. Yes, she's a queen. Love her so much. Everyone should follow her. So Miss Margaret Atwood was born in 1939 in Ottawa and grew up in Northern Ontario and Quebec, Quebec, Quebec. <laughs> and in Toronto. Wow. She moved around a little bit. She received her undergraduate degree from Victoria College at the University of Toronto and her master's degree from Radcliffe College. Cool. She Oh, she's been published in more than 45 countries, and she's wow. the author of more than 50 books of fiction, poetry, critical essays, and graphic novels. Wow. So there I you didn't go. know that. Wow. I didn't know that either. Um, and this is uh, margaretatwood.ca slash biography. Fun fact, um, the only book I ever actually finished in high school was The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. so while tabby (laughs) loves to read she also hates being told what to do so if if something is assigned for class she absolutely will not read it i will not do it maybe one day on her own time but (laughs) it takes a lot certainly not with a deadline your like disdain for authority far outweighs your love of reading (laughs) authority issues (laughs) (laughs) she's fine i would never change you for anything tabitha Uh, do you want to read your poem first do you want me yeah let's switch off so I'll start with mine so my first poem that I want to read is called is slash not love is not a profession genteel or otherwise sex is not dentistry the slick filling of aches and cavities you are not my doctor you are not my cure nobody has that power you are merely a fellow slash traveler give up this medical concern Permit yourself anger and permit me mine, which needs neither your approval nor your surprise, which does not need to be made legal, which is not against a disease, but against you, which does not need to be understood or washed or cauterized, which needs instead to be said and said, permit me the present tense. I know. I love this one. I love them all. 
So it's a very short poem, but as always, so Margaret Atwood is like the queen of enjambment, um, which is seen in pretty much any of her works ever, which basically is like when one sentence ends, but could be continued on to the next line, essentially. One thing that's very prevalent throughout this poem is the use of medical terminology. And I think this is very important because it does show that a lot of things in life can be reduced down to a scientific term, but love cannot. So love is basically whatever the person who is experiencing it wants it to be. It's something that's beyond human understanding. It goes beyond what we can deduce down to a simple phrase. So there's really no clear way to define love. It's different for everybody. And I think that's something that Margaret Atwood is really trying to like convey throughout this is that she does not want to be told how she should love. She just wants to experience it in the present form that it is. And so that very last line that says, permit me the present tense, she wants to just feel what she feels in that moment. Another thing that I think is really cool about this one is the title itself is, is slash not, but in her poem, she uses the words is not together, which is not means that something is, is not that thing. It's the opposite of whatever thing you're about to say, but to title it is slash not slash is kind of just like shorthand for, or, so it's like, it either is, or it is not right in the poem itself. She's saying it is not, but the title says, it could be though. or not that's cool in itself because yeah. you know that kind of changes the whole like if you put a slash in between every is and not in or you change poem, not to is yeah exactly it would 100% change the entire meaning so yes that's cool I like that she did that I also really like the repetition in the poem so she says you are not you are you're not my doctor you are not my cure which does not need to be made legal, which is not against a disease. And so she just repeats like the negative, but like you said, it could be also a positive. Yeah. According to her title, according to her title. So I wonder, which again, kind of... like conveys like that love is not something that can go, like it can go one way or another. It's not something that can be defined. It is, it just is. Yeah. It's very contextual. It, it, changes depending on the situation the person, and the, the situation person. the context yeah. it's extremely contextual I think that's yes. an interesting, interesting it's a good one <laughs> these are like so that one in particular I know was one of the ones we studied in high school yes it I was selected I think I also one. selected another one that we did in high school I know one of mine for sure we did in high school I'm not positive if the other one was or not but I think I think it might've been the one that you taught what you chose was one of my absolute favorite ones that we did in high school. And it's the one that I was assigned. And Ah, it is so good. Uh, Okay. So I'll start with that one. I'll start with heart because it's Tabby and I's favorite. It's my favorite one. So this is heart by Margaret Atwood. Of course, some people sell their blood. You sell your heart. It was either that or the soul. The hard part is getting the damn thing out. A kind of twisting motion, like shucking an oyster, your spine a wrist, and then, hup, it's in your mouth. You turn yourself partially inside out, like a sea anemone, coughing a pebble. There's a broken plop, the racket of fish guts into a pail. And there it is, a huge glistening deep red clot of the still alive past, whole on the plate. It gets passed around. It's slippery. It gets dropped. 
but also tasted. Too coarse, says one, too salty. Too sour, says another, making a face. Each one is an instant gourmet, and you stand listening to all of this in the corner like a newly hired waiter, your diffident, skillful hand on the wound hidden deep in your shirt and chest, shyly heartless. Ah, so good. So again, our queen of enjambment. I freaking love it. Enjambment's the fucking best. It's my favorite literary device and it is Margaret Atwood's fucking thing. Like that's like, if there's not enjambment in her poem, like I'll pay you a, a dollar. It's her thing. And she uses it so wonderfully. So one of my favorite uses of it in this particular poem I mean, there were so many good ones in this one. Oh, I know. Half the, half the poem. Every other line was in jamment. Here's my favorite one, though. It's toward the end of the poem. It's like the third from the last. Your diffident, skillful hand on the wound hidden. Then it cuts off. Deep in your shirt and chest. It's like she's like emphasizing that word where it cuts off. You know what I mean? So that's like the beauty of enjambment is it just changes the meaning depending on how you read it. Another thing that really catches my eye in this poem. So she talks about um, getting your heart out of your body is like shucking an oyster. You turn yourself partially inside out. Like yeah, that's my favorite one. A pebble. Yes. And then it's like, there's a broken plop. The rocket of fish guts into a pail. So it's like this marine life slash fisherman type imagery is kind of what she's doing there in the beginning, which when I think of that, when I think of like fishermen, I think of like, it's just a dreary cloudy day. And there are these men out just grabbing fish in a net. These helpless fish are just being swept out of their life in the ocean and then fucking killed. (laughs) And just like, just like that, their life is over. They've just been like stolen and butchered and they're helpless. And so that's like this whole vibe and feeling that I'm getting in the beginning there. And then she kind of switches toward the end. She's talking about, there it is. It's on a plate. It's getting passed around. It's getting tasted and judged by these people who claim to know about, you know, food and their gourmet culinary and you're standing there in the corner like a new waiter like just you know being quiet minding your business waiting to see what these people say about this thing that you've dished up to them exactly you're just like waiting to get that judgment you're waiting to hear back because a waiter's role is to serve people and if they have criticisms the waiter's job is to try and correct those criticisms and fix the problems And so the speaker is like doing everything. It's literally their job to please these people when literally they've given everything. They've taken the heart from their chest. And I think it gives like a whole new meaning to serving your heart upon a platter. Like that is like what this is. Yes. And so it's like, it's getting passed around to multiple people. Maybe it's like all the people in your life that you've trusted and they've betrayed you or made you feel small. And they've judged you in some way and left you feeling ashamed, alone, and just, you know, helpless because you are this fish that's been taken from the sea and gutted. You are this waiter who can't say anything, can't speak their mind. You have to just sit and listen in the corner. Like it's. Yeah. 
Well, I feel like it also tells the story of a person who has like time and time again, like kind of put their heart on their sleeve and has like given it out freely. And so now it's to the point where it's like you give it out very sparingly and like you hide it away from others and like you keep it very deep within so that no one can see it. Yeah. And so I think it like kind of like tells a tale of like vulnerability. Oh, definitely. And just that being like betrayed by people. Uh, so good. Chills. My friend again. <laughs> So the next one I chose was the moment. And so this was actually the one that I was assigned in high school, really enjoyed it a lot, Um, spoke very deeply to a lot of relevant problems. (laughs) So this is the moment. The moment when, after many years of hard work and a long voyage, you stand in the center of your room, house, half acre, square mile, island, country, knowing at last how you got there and say, I own this. Is the same moment when the trees unloose their soft arms from around you, the birds take back their language, the cliffs fissure and collapse, the air moves back from you like a wave, and you can't breathe. No, they whisper, you own nothing. You were a visitor, time after time, climbing the hill, planting the flag, proclaiming, we never belonged to you. You never found us. It was always the other way around. So good. Um, beautiful. It one's really good. This one definitely focuses on like the construction of ownership and how it kind of separates you from nature itself. So obviously nature was here no, no matter what you believe, like nature was more than likely here before man itself. And so the fact that someone can come in and claim ownership of something that owns itself, me like kind of gives nature the right to recede. And so when this was written, it made me kind of think of, you know, the beginning of civilization when different territories were being claimed from others who were already there from nature that was already there and how it rebelled against them, or even just like, you know, the, the migration of European countries to the United States, what is now the United States and how the indigenous people who live there rebelled against them or nature rebelled against them or how, you know, even climate change, like we continue to build what we think is ours and we claim territories, we stake or claim on different things and how nature is coming back against us, whether that be like global warming or like the ice age and how nothing is actually ours for the taking because something already owns it or there's not even like a true meaning of ownership. It was just already here. Yeah. And I think that also like you mentioned the indigenous peoples and how they, I mean, so speaking just of what I know of like America, like, you know, the United States of America's history and the native Americans who lived here before it was colonized. um, They had a different type of respect for nature and the earth than we do today in our modern, we'll say Western cultures in general. And I think it's, it kind of reminds me of like from the Disney film Pocahontas, which is is problematic in many of its own ways, but it has, you know, a wonderful song uh, regardless of any of the issues with the film. Any of the inaccuracies of the film. <laughs> our Disney princess Pocahontas sings a song, uh, The Colors of the Wind. And it opens up. She's talking to fucking what's-his-face. I don't even know because he sucks in real life, so we don't care about him. F- fuck the white men. These white men are dangerous. Yeah, the white men are dangerous. <laughs> but the lyrics are, you think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing you can claim. And so that is 
very much the attitude of these people who were colonizing the entire world at this point in time. It's still the attitude of many people today. And this is just like the smallest thing, but it is my absolute biggest pet peeve. When people are driving in front of me and I see them flick a cigarette butt out of their car, I want to throttle them. Like nothing angers me more. If you do that, stop it. Hold it in your car. You're going to smell, keep it in your car. Exactly. Like it is not the earth's problem that you have chosen to smoke cigarettes. You put those like in the landfill. Put them in a water bottle. Garbage. We are going to contain our waste to the best of our abilities. And I know it's a broken system anyway, but quit littering everywhere. It makes it worse. Anyway. And I also feel like it kind of shows like the give or take relationship that you have with earth. Like if you take, you have to make sure you're giving back because, um, you know, it says, you know, after many years of hard work in the long voyage, you stand in the center of your house, half acre, square mile, island, or country, knowing at last you got here. And so throughout the time you're grinding away, you're working and you are giving back to what you're doing. But the moment when you finish and you say, yeah, this is mine and mine alone. I got here with nobody else, nothing else. That's when, you know, stuff starts to recede because that's not the case. Like you had to rely on the supplies around you. You had to rely on the people around you. And so it's not your own. It was a give take scenario. Yeah. Ownership, I think can be such a, you don't own anything. You had to take things to get that. Like you had to rely on others to get where you are. So it's not yours. It's the blood, sweat, and tears of everyone else around you. And like, really everything is borrowed anyway, because it's not like we yours. immortal lives. Like you're just here for a period of time. You borrow things while you're here. And And then what was available that was provided by people before you. Yeah. And then things get recycled and everyone forgets who you are. Are you a little egotistical weasel? (laughs) Nothing is yours. It's everybody's because it was here long before us. You who are listening to this podcast, I am talking to you. Nothing is yours. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Ownership is a very dangerous game to play. Yeah. I mean, it just gets into like the whole like egotistical pride that humans have in general naturally like it just gets kind of we are inclined to like overpower and dominate and that is not the case yeah it does and then we end up hurting things around us and eventually creates a chain of events yeah thanks margaret thanks margaret the last poem i will be reading for us today is variations on the word love so there's this actually is a, a very, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. You're fine. It's yeah. It's longer than the other ones. Is oh, well, there's also say? one that's called a variation of the word sleep. I love that. I think she has a lot of kind of similar themes throughout her poems. Like it sure. kind of, and I, I think that's really cool too, because whenever you think about a published book of poetry for things to kind of like cohesively tie the entire book yeah. of poetry together, I think is really cool. It makes it feel like a, an actual unit of work. Definitely. I like that. Interesting. So variations on the word love. This is a word we use to plug holes with. It's the right size for those warm blanks in speech, for those red heart-shaped vacancies on the page that look nothing like real hearts. Add lace and you can sell it. 
We insert it also in the one empty space on the printed form that comes with no instructions. There are whole magazines with not much in them but the word love. You can rub it all over your body and you can cook with it too. How do we know it isn't what goes on at the cool debaucheries of slugs under damp pieces of cardboard? As for the weed seedlings nosing their tough snouts up among the lettuces, they shout it. Love, love, sing the soldiers, raising their glittering knives in salute. Then there's the two of us. This word is far too short for us. It has only four letters, too sparse to fill those deep, bare vacuums between the stars that press on us with their deafness. It's not love we don't wish to fall into, but that fear. This word is not enough, but it will have to do. It's a single vowel in this metallic silence, a mouth that says, oh, again and again in wonder and pain, a breath, a finger grip on a cliffside. You can hold on or let go. Ah, I know she's freaking amazing. Uh, I love her so much. One of the first things that sticks out to me in this poem is toward the beginning when she says, add lace and you can sell it. Just kind of the commercialization of love. And I think of Valentine's Day and how people like will buy these really kind of meaningless things to show their love. But really, it's just like it's a card. It's nothing. It's a a cardboard. It's nothing. It means nothing like in the real world, like it's just, but then at the same time, if you are in a relationship with someone and they don't get you a gift on Valentine's day, like that feels like a betrayal almost because we've put such an importance on that too. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. The commercialization of love is like the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody because we have just like dampened the meaning of what love is like it is just so freely like flung around like like oh I love that like oh I love that tv show oh I love that song it's like what does love even mean anymore and is it the same as like being in love and I don't think it is I actually want to touch on that because so that is something that yes in the English language and especially like American English I you know I'm not familiar with uh, other forms of English but Love is thrown around super loosely. However, in other languages, it's actually not, um, not every single language, but okay. So my husband is currently, he's learning Spanish. Like he has a tutor who is fluent and native to Mexico. And so he was kind of explaining to me, um, again, you know, he's learning. So my husband is not currently fluent in Spanish, but he was explaining to me how there's kind of like these different levels of affection. And so like, whenever you first start dating someone, you would use a certain phrase versus whenever you're like married to someone and like, you know, like, this is it, this is your life partner. So there's actually kind of a different levels to this, like, affection. Whereas like in English, we just say love from the get go, basically. Um, so it kind of just, it's interesting how it's different in other languages. Yeah. And I know like in ancient Greek as well, I think there are multiple variations and, and intensities of yes. the word love. Well, and so, I think even in like the, like the romance languages, like coming from like Latin up to like, you know, Spanish, French, Italian, there, like you said, there are different levels of appreciation because even in French, like you have j'adore, which is I adore you, or je t'aime, which is I love you, or j'apprécie, which is I appreciate you, or I like you. And it's mm-hmm. like, 
those are used in very different like connotations. Whereas like in American English, it's very, very common to just, and it's not like, okay. So like, let's say someone talks about someone that you're actually just kind of friendly acquaintances with. And they're like, oh, do you know? So-and-so you're like, oh my gosh, yes, I love her. And that's not taken in the way that like, you love her like romantically, or you love her like as a sister, they're like, Oh mm-hmm. no, this person is familiar with her and they enjoy their company. That's yes. And you know, exactly based on the context and the tone, you know, exactly what they mean when they use the word love in that context, but it's the exact same word. Yeah. So it's, it's weird. Like it's weird, but it's something that native speakers of English completely understand. But, like, if you came from somewhere else, you might be like, oh, like, oh, you're in love with this person. Oh, you love her? Oh, I didn't realize you guys were close. And then I think there's also, like, just the big difference of loving something and being, like, in love with something. And it's, like, there's just such a fine, like, I don't know. Like, I just hate how platonic we've made the word love like and like when it's supposed to be something that is like as far from platonic as possible it's been bastardized yes truly um but yeah so that's an interesting piece of this poem so I think that that is kind of like one of the things she's getting at so there's that aspect but she's kind of used other tools as well to get another point across so she mentions like the weed seedlings pushing their way up through like the garden beds basically they shout it they shout love so she's personified these these weeds and also she said love love sing the soldiers raising their glittering knives in salute so the yes. irony of that too it's like no like that's not love she's like, i did this attention. for love in the name of love yes yeah, like with my murderous weapon in my hand and it's like Oh, clearly in this first stanza, she's like saying all these things and you're like, oh, me, the reader knows that's not love. Like, I'm no fool. I know that's not love. And then you get to the second stanza and she says, then there's the two of us. And so you're like, oh, okay, this is personal. This is like a a personal, like someone talking to a lover. This word is far too short for us. It has only four letters, which I think is kind of an interesting thing too. Because I love that. See? This word, she's like, it can't be powerful because it's too short. It's not enough. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's what nothing. we have it's cannot be put short. into words. Yeah. She's like this, this won't do. And, um, you know, talking about it can't fill that space between us. We, we have the space, like this infinite space between us, like the distance between stars. And then she, she eventually says in this stanza, this word is not enough, but it will have to do. Because it's like, well, what else can you use? Like, right. there's nothing else to just. How else it. can I convey my like complete, like dedication to you? Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like, what else are you gonna say? Like, there's no other choice. That's um, one of my favorite things to read in a book too. Is like when an author acknowledges that like the word love is like not nothing, enough. and so. Like, I think it's almost better because like, you know, you always get to the point where it's like, oh, when are they going to tell each other that they love them when they're going to admit their love to each other? And it's like, no, like what they have, like precedes the word love. It precedes, like she said, the galaxies, the universes, like it is not nearly enough to like convey like the feeling I feel for this person. Yeah. And it's more like as the reader, like what you're really feeling and really wanting is when are they going to show 
their love for one another. Exactly. Not when are they like going confess to it. Yeah. Like, when are they going to sacrifice something for the other or, you know, put the other Demonstrate person above their them? Love. That's really what love is. And I think we all know that. Yeah. Like, inherently, we know that and we understand that. But language is kind of like the main tool that we have to communicate with each other. So that's why there's such an importance placed on the words that you say to each other. So of course it still carries weight and that's why it's important to us. But her poem is kind of flipping that around and being like, well, you can say anything like, yeah, say whatever you want. It doesn't mean that it's genuine. It doesn't mean that it's actually what we want love to be and what love is meant to represent. Like every word is just kind of like a stand in for something. Like we've just given it a name and we're like, okay, that's love. Yeah. But like, but it's like, it's not. <laughs> yeah. You have to determine like based on the circumstances, whether or not that is actually someone showing love and so that that's what makes it basically it's so tricky yeah (laughs) like if this word is just like yeah we use it for a lot of things it can mean a lot of things (laughs) well it's just like going back to that first poem I read it's like love cannot be like contained to a certain phrase or certain situation it's like what you feel in that very moment that defines what it is it's not something that's like predetermined or preset or you know conveyed by media it's whatever you are feeling in that moment for another person is what love is Exactly. And it's different depending on the person. It's different depending on this stage of life. It's yeah, it's so contextual. And so I think that's something like, again, a lot of her themes recur throughout multiple poems and love is definitely one of them. I think the most powerful part of this poem is the end when she says, a finger grip on a cliffside, you can either hold on or let go. So you're hanging on by a fingertip on this cliff, you know, trying not to fall off. It's like, you can either keep holding on, keep, you're not going to get back up on that cliff. You only have a finger grip. So keep holding it love or whatever you think it is. Yeah. So like you can keep holding on and suffering with this like tiny little grip on the cliff with your one finger, or you can just let go. And fall into that love. And she's like, it's one or the other because you are not going to get yourself back up on that cliff. You're not going to get your feet back on the ground. So you can either just keep hanging there or you can can let let yourself feel it. And I just like, I love that. I think it's so true because you just, you don't have control over like the people that you love, the things that you feel for people. It's very much just your heart and your mind just kind of decide it for you. It just is. It's just nature, baby. <laughs> Thank you so much, Margaret Atwood, for writing such pieces that make you think about what the fuck's going on. <laughs> yes. Thanks for challenging our brains and making us feel like we are smart and insightful, even though Thank you're you literally so spoon fed it to us. <laughs> Vicky, I dedicate this one to you because I only knew what was going on today because of what we did in nine years ago. Definitely. And she introduced us to this wonderful, wonderful poet and author. 
Margaret Atwood. Um, so this wraps up our mini set for the week, but catch us next Monday as we talk about this seven husbands of Evelyn, or Evelyn, Evelyn Hugo. <laughs> um, so I actually have not read this book. It's by Taylor Jenkins Reed. Um, Caitlin has read it though. So yes. she's got a one up on me this time. Uh, yeah, for once. And this book is very, very good. I really like it. And I recommend that you all read along with us. Feel free to send us even more author recs or book recs, Instagram accounts, anything to follow at our email, the sisterswarden at gmail.com. And as always, let's get lit. Let's get lit.